Welcome to episode 10 of the Hunting for Candlelands podcast. It's been a little while since our last show, but that's largely because I wanted to make this episode our Australia Ganza Part 2. So I needed to get my interview with Australian musician Lenka done, which I will feature first on the show, and then Mike Schwartz continues his discussion of Australian cinema, this time focusing on Australian urban cinema, as opposed to the Outback-centric movies he discussed last time. Then we'll close out the show with a song off of Lenka's new album. I've also been busy with a couple of other things, including a new dog. I've started being a DJ at radio station WCBN at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. If you would like to listen, I'm going to have a regular spot through September. I'll be on every Saturday night, or Sunday morning if you prefer, at 3 to 6 a.m. Eastern Time. You can listen live on WCBN.org. My plan is to recreate each of my old Nether Regions podcasts, which was a freeform sound collage music show, using the original raw materials I used to make them, plus enough new stuff to make what was a one-hour podcast into a three-hour show. I'm calling it the Nether Regions Extended Dance Mix. But back to Australia. Up first is my interview with Lenka. I should add that the first couple minutes of the Lenka interview had a little bit of an audio problem, so you can't hear her very well. But after that, it should be a lot better. So don't let that dissuade you from listening to the whole interview. Please. Hi, Lenka. Hi, this is Neil. How are you? I'm doing all right. Hi, Neil. I'm I'm interviewing you for my podcast, which is called Hunting for Candle Ends. Um, it's the cool. this is the second part of a two part series that's focused on actually Australian music and movies. Um, for the first part, I interviewed. Oh, nice. Yeah, I interviewed um, the band Atlas Genius, who are from Adelaide. I don't know if you know those guys. Um, no, yeah, and uh, I also somebody else did a piece on Australian outback cinema, and this week he's doing Australian urban cinema, and I'm interviewing you for this. So, right. so um, while and while I'm on the topic of movies, I know you have a lot of acting experience. What are some of your favorite Australian movies off the top of your head? My favorite is Bliss. Bliss. This is a Peter Carey novel. Yeah, and um, it's got um, it's from seventies or early eighties. It's got um, Barry Otto in it. He's a great Australian actor. Um, it's a quirky drama comedy kind of thing. Um, and I love. Well, there was this real golden era of Australian cinema where we were cranking out these really bizarre comedies like Strictly Ballroom and um, Muriel's Wedding. Yeah, I love all those because I was I was probably like a young teen at the time. Um, but yeah, Picnic at Hanging Rock is also really beautiful. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've seen several of your music videos and they have really striking visuals. How important was it to you to have a visual component to your music? Very, and actually, as we speak, I'm making a stop motion animation of paper art <laughs> for a new new song. Um, I think that the visual component of pop music is very important and in indie music too. Um, almost as important as the sound. I mean, we rarely these days listen to music without knowing what they look like and what the visual identity of the project is. Um, so I, I, I put a fair amount of effort into 
making, like creating a world that um, encompasses everything that I'm trying to communicate. Um, and having been an actor, start my career as someone that was making music for soundtracks, I am very aware of the, the link between visuals and sound and it's um, something that I definitely focus on. And I'm starting to do it again, actually, write, write music as, as specifically, you know, to soundtrack stuff. Can I ask what video you're you're making a uh, video for? I mean, what music you're making a video for? Um, the song I'm doing at the moment is called After the Winter. That's one of the ones from Shadows, my new album. Yeah, and so it's all about seasons, and I'm making um, paper art, uh, nature-y kind of things about the descriptive stuff that's mentioned, and then I'm going to project it onto myself <laughs> while I sing the song. So hopefully it turns out well. I'm having fun doing it. Oh, that sounds cool. I just saw the Nothing Here But Love video. Um, uh-huh. What was the process of creating that video? It looks like it was very, uh, very painstaking uh, method of getting all that stuff on you. Yeah, it was rather. Um, that one was my husband's idea, actually. And uh, it's he just kind of wanted to turn a body into a landscape. And um, I decided that this might be a good song to do it for. And the process was I guess, mapping out on my body what parts of landscapes would be where. And then we hired a prosthetics prop maker, like a film girl that we, we knew, a friend of a friend, basically, that works on feature films like Wolverine and she works on The Great Gatsby and stuff. And she came and um, measured up the sections and went away and built these pieces. I mean, it was a pretty, like, it was a pretty involved process as far as just figuring out which materials to use to make it because we didn't really have a reference or a guide to do that. And then a few fittings to make sure it worked. And then we went into the studio and I lay there for about five hours while they were all... Um, like um, it had to be airbrushed onto my body, like stuck on, glued on, and then airbrushed to to join into my skin. And then we shot it with macro lens. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty involved process. It was very fun. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I was I was wondering when I was looking at the the visuals and the music. I was wondering if you were intending to sort of create a persona that was Lenka that was not necessarily different from you as a person. You know, like maybe David Bowie would do or something. Or if if Lenka is really just yourself with with no last name. Yeah, um, good question. I don't know. I don't know. It's probably somewhere in between. It's like an exaggerated alter ego of myself um, where I I do have this sort of musical little girl inside me um, and I sort of really, really let her out in my music and she's she's the, the main focus rather than the sort of adult boring me. (laughs) <laughs> I guess um, so it's, it's almost like a, a relief for me to just be her because it's the true me or something or a more interesting enjoyable version of myself sure yeah no, that makes sense um, you described your most recent album Shadows as lullabies for grown-ups um, first question I was wondering when I was listening to it did you intend it to be sort of a a night album is that part of it that it was or is that yes yes you did 
yes, it's a night album, and it is supposed to be quite specifically um, an album for falling asleep and starting to dream. Um, I just always really liked those kind of albums that you can put on and relax, and if you do fall asleep, it won't disturb you, you know? Um, and I felt like I hadn't really done that in my career yet, everything, besides back in the decodering days, which I, I have a feeling you may going to be touching on things if you're interested in soundtracks. But that music was super dreaming. But lately I've been making stuff that was intended to be dynamic and energetic and uplifting. And I just really wanted to make an album that was more relaxing, I guess. And if you do fall asleep, it's not going to wake you up. And I have a secret desire to actually invade people's dreams. So I'm hoping that they do fall asleep while listening to my music and they keep listening and then my music inside their subconscious. I love it. And I've, I've done that myself. I've listened to my iPod while falling asleep. And there's a certain moment just before you fall asleep, I think, where something happens with the music, where it just gets incredible just as you fall asleep. Because then the next day I've tried to find that part in the mm-hmm. song and I can't. It's almost like mm-hmm. my mind helped yeah, create right. the moment with it. So that's, that's a neat idea. I like that. Um, interesting. I also like albums that establish a mood like that because there's sometimes I hear an album and it has sort of a spring summery mood and then there's a winter song on there and it kind of it kind of pulls me out of it but I like mm, when the whole like, album can create a mood. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Were, yeah. I'm sorry, were there songs you recorded that didn't fit with the concept of the album? Um not this time round because what I actually did was collect the songs that fit the best. Um, like, that, you know, actually two of the songs on this album are songs that didn't fit with the previous albums. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of the other way around. Like, this is, these are the ones that, um, that I, I guess I was unconsciously saving for this album. Um, but, I, I have been writing stuff recently that is different. I guess I might actually you know, I might have written a couple that never really saw the light of day as far as production because um, I knew that they wouldn't fit. Um, yeah, too too energetic. And in in the production in the in the studio, I was always communicating to the musicians and engineers to keep everything smooth and mellow and not let the dynamics shift too much. And you know sometimes entire parts had to be scrapped, particularly drums and things like that, because I felt like they were too big. And that's weirdly challenging for um, <laughs> producers <laughs> to keep things sort of smooth, to not let, you know, because everybody wants their choruses to be really uplifting, but I didn't. <laughs> right. Um, so how was your, what was your approach on your last album? I mean, that was, that was so, I mean, how did it change from well, the last album? Before? I was actually the last album. I really wanted it to be super energetic. That was my focus. Um, yeah, so it's pretty different. I was like wanting to pick the spikiest beat sounds, and I wanted it to sort of sound um, human, but not um, like I wanted, I don't know, I wanted it to be dancey, but also sort of ephemeral, but it was pretty different. I, I was definitely trying something different last time, yeah. 
Well, um, with an album like this that's so so quiet, you know, aimed at night and and you know lullabies for grown-ups, how what can people expect from the stage show? Is it are you going to draw heavily mm. from this album, or is it going to be you know a mix or? Should people bring their pillows to the to the show? <laughs> yes, they should. Pillows would be totally welcome. Um, we, if if it was possible, I would totally have nap time during the show. But I, I sometimes make a joke about it. But I don't know. I don't know if people want to pay money to come see a show and have a nap. Um, <laughs> but I do hope that they will go home and sleep well that night. Um, but yeah, I've, I've sort of gone with the dreamy, folky vibe and and changed the the musicians line up. We've got cello and violin and guitar piano and there's only drums and bass on a few tracks, um, sort of keeping it pretty quiet for the most part. I've dropped the horn, dropped electric um, instruments for the most part. Um, and so the tour is starting, when, when is the tour starting? In... Well, I'm sort of touring on and off all year. Um, yeah, so I've done the West Coast and I've done a couple of Europe shows and now I'm going to do the East Coast and then I'll do Europe again and then I head home to Australia and do Australia and then do um, Asia. So <laughs> it's, um, I'm trying to be logistical because I have a sort of like on and off. But so far it's been going great and I've been really enjoying it and it's been really good to sort of do a week on and a week off um, for my sanity and energy levels. Um, and the shows have been beautiful. We've been having a good time. Yeah, I, I know you became a mother last year. Have you been touring with the baby or taking time off to to, to go home? Or well, he he doesn't come to every show with me. But like, for example, for this East Coast tour, I'm basing myself in New York, and then I'll go off and do do the local towns, and he'll stay in New York. Um. And then we're going to all go and be based in Berlin while I do a Europe tour. And that's why I can think of doing it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, so actually, let me, let me ask you then about what what soundtrack work have you done? You mentioned that you had done some soundtrack work before. Yeah, I have. And I, I thought that you were just actually because it's perfectly for, perfect for your podcast. Um, I... Well, the first thing that I did professionally as a musician after having been an actor um, was with this band called Decodering, who are Australian electronic kind of ambient outfit. Um, and it was for a movie called Somersault, which is a kind of a coming-of-age film by a director called Kate Shortland. And it's got Abby Cornish in it, who's been doing a lot of work in the States, actually. Um, it's sort of like lost in translation kind of film. It's really slow, moving, and it's lovely. Um, yeah, so they, the band had already made the music to fit the movie and then instrumental, and then they decided they wanted to have um, some female vocals because it was a very female kind of story. So they asked me to write some vocals over this one song, Somersault, and the director gave me some lyric ideas that she felt fit the mood. And, um, yeah, it was actually really successful. It won awards. Like it won like film awards and stuff in Australia, soundtrack awards, and became a radio hit and 
was really great for the band and, and myself and toured a lot off the back of it, but it all came out of the film. And for me, it was a really great way to start in music because I had been an actor and this meant that I could sort of, I don't know, it sort of felt like I was blending in by writing from the perspective of a character. It made it helped as a way for me to um, to start writing pop songs. Um, and I think I've definitely, um, like, learnt from that experience of a, an interesting way to write. And lately I've been, I've gone back to doing a bit of that stuff. Um, I just wrote a song for a new J.J. Abrams show that's coming out next year called Believe. Yeah, so that was, again, you know, a situation where the, I spoke with the director and gave me some ideas what the themes of the show were and I went away and wrote a song. Cool. Um, do you sometimes, I guess I'm, I wonder if when you're writing your songs, do the do the visuals that you're going to be using this i mean like for your own songs do the do the mm. visuals that you're going to be using in the future kind of come into your head and think oh and while i'm while this is going on i could be you know this kind of thing could be appearing do you think of the same the things together when you're writing a song i do yeah i i, I sort of feel like that's the ideal for me if i do get an idea um for then i know i'm on the right track <laughs> well yeah. all right um and i think that yeah, i'm probably running out of time here's here's my last question for you it's kind of a silly question but um uh i didn't i, I know your your video for everything at once was used in the uh the windows 8 commercial um and i kept seeing mm. references on the internet that everyone was sure that the symbols on your hand were some sort of illuminati oh, symbol God, I know. ridiculous so ridiculous. I and then I, I was just getting irritated with it, and I was like, "Why is everyone saying Illuminati?" And then, of course, they were like, "Only an Illuminati would say that." Um, I don't know. It's weird. Um, I don't even know what the Illuminati is, to be honest. Uh, it seems like something that I probably wish I was a part of because it's all super powerful people that run the world. Um, but yeah, weird, huh? Just because I had triangle, I had eyes and triangles on my hands. To me, it actually, the eyes on your hand reminded me of Pan's Labyrinth. Have you seen that movie? Oh, so frightening. Is that, does that happen in that movie? Yeah, he has, the, the monster has eyes on his hands, and that's the only way he can see is if he holds his hands up to his eye. So that's what it is. Oh, that's, that's what, right. Yeah, right, right. <gasps> oh, I didn't mean to, I really didn't mean to call upon that. No, right no, <laughs> no, I love the video. It's great. Well, um. Thank you so much for for doing the interview. I really appreciate it, and I'll I'll make sure to see you when you come Pleasure. to Michigan. And uh, great, have a have a good one. See you then. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Lenka and thanks to Shannon at BB Gun Press for helping to set up the interview. Up next is more from Mike Schwartz as he comes in from the outback and discusses Australian urban cinema. Take it away, Mike. And her five cities, like five teeming sores, each drains her, a vast parasite robber state where second-hand Europeans pullulate timidly on the edge of alien shores. 
That was a snippet from the poem Australia by A.D. Hope, and it's a fitting opening to this week's episode of my segment of the podcast, because we'll be looking today at the urban Australian experience in Australian films, and specifically at the descendants of those secondhand Europeans and the civilization that they built on the edge of Australia's alien shores. So welcome, I'm Mike Schwartz. And in the last episode of Hunting for Candlelands, we looked at the outback films in Australia and the frontier mentality that emerged in Australian cinema. However, Australia is one of the most urbanized countries in the world, with most of its inhabitants concentrated in towns and cities. So we'll conclude our two-part focus on Australian cinema by looking at the films that take place in urban settings. So in contrast with the geographical specificity of the Australian outback films, which we talked about last week, where the outback plays as an important role as any of the characters in the film, many of these city films or urban films present an image of a generic or non-specific city. Um, an urban, it's an urban life that's more in common with metropolises everywhere, with their high-rises, office blocks, shopping malls, apartment complexes, etc. And this uh, generic quality allows these filmmakers to make a more universal commentary on the problems of urban living whether it's alienation or disconnection from the natural world or the ennui of suburban sprawl, uh, or even more concrete topics like crime, unemployment, and homelessness. So in addition to the urban settings of these films, many of them take place entirely within the home, barely venturing outside into the bright Australian sunlight, where pretty much all of the outback films took place. The films that I'm going to look at this week uh, are most often considered genre films, and they present sometimes a lurid, shocking, and dysfunctional perspective on families, including you know horrific family secrets, uh, including incest, murder, hidden lineages, and extreme isolation from the outside world. Many of these films do fit under the Ozploitation label, which I discussed last week, and they explicitly model themselves on American genre films, including slasher films. So we'll talk about the films Cassandra and Nightmares. Uh, Stalkers, the film Snapshot. Haunted Houses, we'll talk about Next of Kin later. And Psychos, including Patrick and Night of Fear. Although these films did take their cue from American, for the American films that preceded them, some of the exploitation films, like The Road Warrior, were so popular that they actually influenced American films. Examples of this include The Cars That Ate Paris by Peter Weir, which we did discuss last week. That was a huge influence on Roger Corman's Death Race 2000. Next of Kin, which I just mentioned, influenced Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And Patrick, which I mentioned last week and will talk about more in depth this week, spawned dozens of American and European ripoffs. And The Long Weekend, which I won't talk about this week but did last week, was remade fairly recently by American filmmakers. So the influence of Hollywood obviously played a massive role in the development of Australian cinema. Diane Collins explains this phenomenon, which is not uncommon to many countries' newborn film industries. So here's the quote from Diane Collins. For most of this century, Australians have watched little else but American movies, and America's domination of Australia's film culture extended far beyond the screen. Australians saw and see these films in American-style picture shows. News of the latest releases come came and comes via the American industry's publicity methods. It was not long before locally made films were modeled on the Hollywood production styles, and Americans, America's movie world meant more to many Australians than their own homegrown celebrities. 
So moving on, because of this American influence, some American Australian directors reacted to this by seeking to assert an Australian identity in their films. Many of these films sought to define Australia for an international audience and were marketed directly to film festivals around the world. This included films by directors like Peter Weir, Bruce Beresford, Fred Shepsey in the 70s, Gillian Armstrong, Philip Noyce, and George Miller in the 80s, and Jane Campion, a New Zealander who trained in Australia in the 90s. Films like The Devil's Playground, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Breaker Morant, The Getting of Wisdom, My Brilliant Career, The Year My Voice Broke, Gallipoli, Flirting, Muriel's Wedding, and Sweetie were hits on the festival circuits. And, of course, actors like Russell Crowe, Judy Davis, Jack Thompson, Tony Collette, Sam Neill, and Hugh Jackman eventually became international stars. Other Australian films were designed for the home audience, taking pride in Australian culture and its many subcultures. This includes the social milieu of Australian sheep shearers in A Sunday Too Far Away, the Aboriginal experience in The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, and the Australian political, social, and vernacular, vernacular cultures of Don's Party and The Club. Many of the Australian New Wave films de defined the Australian identity in opposition to a British identity. This includes such classic war films as Breaker Morant, about Australian soldiers sacrificed by the British during the Boer War, and Gallipoli, a really well-known Australian film about Australian soldiers during World War II. And other films took a more literary approach, presenting well-known literary works and period pieces on the big screen, including, of course, Picnic at Hanging Rock, but also My Brilliant Career, The Year My Voice Broke, and The Getting of Wisdom. So I'd like to now take a deeper look at the films that take place in Australia in urban settings. As I mentioned, many of these films were set in anonymous, anytown type settings. And this can perhaps be explained by Australia's young history, which created a kind of tabula rasa on the screen. Australia could stand in for anywhere, because Australia was such a young country with such a recent history, and it didn't have a very firmly defined sense of identity. The initially very Australian and later American transplant director Fred Shepsey said, quote, We didn't necessarily grow up with a great culture of our own. As much, if not more, we grew up with English culture and American culture. While we're not American or English, it is part of us. It's just as much a part of us as being Australian. Many Australian directors and producers note that this lack of identity was one of the factors in Australia's strong cultural identification with America. This not only includes the uh, cowboy films and the... Um, fast cars and surfing of Australia, but also things like suburbanization and alienation and capitalism and democracy. Clearly, Australia models itself on America in many of these ways. Richard Franklin, the director, has pointed out the close cultural identification that Australia has with America ought to be acknowledged on the big screen instead of ignored. And George Miller, the director of Road Warrior, Mad Max, and other movies, sees other international influences at work in Australian cinema as well. George Miller says, even though our culture reproduces to some degree the American, the British, the European, and in a little way, Asian culture, I think that makes us even a very, in a very subtle way, peculiarly Australian, and you can never get around that. Famed Australian producer Anthony I. Ginane, who made films solely in Australia but was compared most closely to America's Roger Corman, looked beyond Australia or American shores 
when he said that the films he produces are set in non-specific environments so that anyone anywhere can identify with them. Many of these films use this almost America but not quite quality to enhance the dreamlike, ethereal quality of their narratives. This also occurs in Canadian cinema. An American fan of Canadian filmmaker David Cronenberg uh, is quoted in, in the book Australian National Cinema describing this effect. He says, The fact that you make your films in Canada makes them even more eerie and dreamlike, because it's like America, but it's not. The streets look American, but they're not. And the accents are American, but not quite. Everything's a little off-kilter. It's sort of like a dream image of America. I find that this is totally true of the Australian films as well, especially these urban films that take place in this non-specific setting. They have, they all of them have an eerie quality about them that feels very familiar, like it is, you know, the street down on, on your block or the uh, uh, next door to your house, but they are something off about them. There's something that gives them a very bizarre, surreal quality. So the films that take place in these faceless cities often presented their cities as stand-ins for American or European cities, and they featured an international cast with indeterminate accents, and they used familiar genre tropes to tell their very non-specific Australian stories. These films were designed to appeal to a wider English-speaking audience and play in American grindhouse and indie cinemas, as well as in England and Canada in order to maximize profits. The more ambitious of these films used this anonymity to get across universal themes. The film's Strange Behavior, or the film Strange Behavior, aka Dead Kids, and the film Thirst are two examples of this. Strange Behavior was written by an American, it was filmed by an Australian, it was set in New Zealand with a cast of American actors, including Robert Altman and Woody Allen actor Michael Murphy, and Nurse Ratched Louise Fletcher. Strange Behavior, a movie of mystery, horror, and suspense. A clear and unnatural picture begins to form in my mind. They're going to strap me into some chair and pull throw with my grace. Would you just there. wait a minute and listen to me? Two sessions, two days, a hundred bucks a day. Behavior is nothing more than the sum of the mechanical activities of our bodies. I was just wondering, are you doing anything tonight? Oh, he's dead. And the dead don't come back and take revenge. That was the American trailer for Strange Behavior. The plot of this small horror film isn't really much. It really concerns some kids who turn up dead in a very stylized 1950s TV American town, supposedly Galesburg, Illinois, where mad scientist psychologists experiment with remote controlling animals and humans in a local university lab. But the film's greatness lies in its atmosphere, its likable characters, its laid-back pacing, and its mix of charming scenes and shocking horrific imagery. Some of these include the first killing, which is seen entirely in silhouettes, a musical sequence at a teen party that comes out of nowhere, and the many David Lynch-style creepy images that uh, fill the screen, including shots from a windshield of a car, um, a lunatic scientist played by Australian veteran actor Arthur Dingham, who's lecturing be from beyond the grave, and then there's also Tangerine Dream's dreamy soundtrack, uh, sleek and, and a character uh, who who is a sleek, beautiful scientist with a hypodermic needle. Apparently, she was a model for Sean Young's character in Blade Runner. 
There's also plenty of strange behavior on display in the film as possessed teens carry out violent acts, including a shocking party attack scene by the kid who played Jimmy Olsen in the Superman movies. Director Michael Laughlin and writer Bill Condon went to do the similarly low-key, similarly titled sci-fi horror film Strange Invaders. And Bill Condon is familiar to many people because he would go on later to write and direct the James Whale biopic Gods and Monsters. Vampires. Creatures of the night. Driven by insatiable thirst. This ancient evil is now a modern industry, backed by big money. Kate, she's young, she's in love, she's the next victim. You just heard a clip from the Australian vampire film Thirst. This unusual vampire film takes place in a similar no-man's land with another international cast, including Henry Silva and British actor-turned-Australian director David Hemmings, and with the inter international market firmly in mind. The film presents a modern variation on vampires, with its setting of a modern vampire farm in which humans are drugged and drained like cows so that their blood can be harvested by modern-day, fangless, coffinless vampires. The lead character, an ancestor of Elizabeth Bathory, is recruited to be part of this cabal, and the film details her attempt to resist this conversion and the calling of her blood. The film is full of striking images, similar to Strange Behavior. It includes images like humans lined up in row upon row as if they were cows being milked, their blood being stored in milk cartons, and foreign vampire tourists happily snapping shot photos of the proceedings. Apparently, the story is uh, these vampires, 70,000 of them, exist throughout the world, and they're modern-day vampires. They don't have fangs or uh, don't aren't susceptible to crosses in holy water, but they do harvest humans in these, these farm-like settings. The film also features some great hallucinatory dream sequences as the Cabal attempts to use brainwashing techniques to convert their newest recruit. And uh, the film has many of these sequences, including a shower scene where blood comes out of the shower, a scene where the heroine is in a house that's falling apart all around her, and a really innocent-looking picnic that turns very subtly into a nightmare. After all, I've just killed 300 people in a field and walked away without a scratch. That makes me pretty special, doesn't it? The pilot is haunted by the guilt of his survivor. It'll come. Has to hurry. I think I'm going mad. The psychic is tormented by visions of the horrors yet to come. They're asking for your help. Who's asking for help? The men, women, and children who died in your aircraft. 300 murdered souls combine their psychic energy to hunt down their killer and destroy those who profit from their death. Well, that was a clip from the trailer to The Survivor, which is another of these non-specifically located Australian genre films. 
The Survivor is the Anthony Ganane produced The Survivor. He's the producer I mentioned earlier, who's kind of like the Roger Corman of Australia. And it's another example of how Australian genre films use the non-specific and quotidian settings to evoke a chilly mood of dread and horror. The film begins with a nighttime airplane disaster, a crash, and it's filmed very impressively. It's actually as harrowing as the scene in the more recent film Flight. It's intercut with daytime scenes of a nondescript field containing a group of girls playing a familiar children's game, as well as people putting up laundry, going about their business, etc., which suddenly and subtly shifts into a very dreamlike and surreal atmosphere. This is the perfect opening to a film about how the souls of the 300 dead people on that plane return to seek justice, for the accident of the plane crash wasn't really an accident after all. The film builds suspense as the spirit of a dead girl who represents all the victims pursues revenge, and as a psychic works with the only survivor of the crash, the pilot, played by British actor Robert Powell, to discover and publicize the truth behind it. By far the creepiest moment for me in this film, and in really all, nearly all the exploitation films I've seen, is the scene where the little girl haunts a photographer who exploited the disaster for private gain. She appears at the edges of his vision, and suddenly she takes a hold of his hand out of the blue, and you nearly jump out of the seat when this happens. As he turns to see who has grabbed his hand, he discovers he's holding her burnt charred doll in, in his hand. One of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen in a movie. There's plenty of Poe and Ambrose Bierce and Hitchcock in this film, with a good helping of The Twilight Zone as well, although I should say the film does lose steam well before the end. The bad guy and his motive turns out to be utterly ridiculous, and the final twist of the film is quite predictable for anyone who's seen the film Carnival of Souls or a million other films like this. Uh, Brian May, the most important Australian soundtrack composer, not the Brian May from Queen, different Brian May, contributes a half-orchestral, half-electronic score to the film that emphasizes the strange mood of the entire film. A film that takes place in a universalized landscape in order to make a universal message, a la The China Syndrome, is the excellent action film The Chain Reaction. The film concerns a spill at a nuclear plant that contaminates a scientist and the surrounding environment, slowly poisoning several characters who attempt to alert the outside world to the unfolding cover-up. It's an extremely exciting film, in part because it was co-directed by Mad Max visionary Dr. George Miller. I'm mentioning, I'm saying doctor in here because there are actually two directors called George Miller in Australia. The guy who did The Man from Snowy River and other really innocuous films. And then the guy who did the Mad, Mad Max films. And the film stars many of the same actors, actually, as in Mad Max, including the actor Hugh Kearns Byrne, who played Toe Cutter in Mad Max, and he's appeared in many other Australian films, including Mad Dog Morgan. The anti-nuclear message of the film is truly a universal one, since at the time of the filming, and still today, as far as I know, Australia does not even use nuclear energy for electricity. A number of Australian genre films make great use of Sydney, the film Snapshot and The Night the Prowler make very interesting use of these city locations, although ultimately neither of these films is very successful. Snapshot is a fairly run-of-the-mill stalker film about a girl who wants to be a model and is tempted by the excitement of the big city, but ends up stalked by a deranged former boyfriend. The Night the Prowler was directed by Rocky Horror Picture Show director Jim Sharman and tells the story of a repressed girl who invents a home invasion and a rape as an outlet for her sexual frustration which begins her descent into the Sydney underworld. Sydney does not come off well in either of these films. 
Uh, her appetite for violence and depravity grow as she makes nocturnal visits to the parks, abandoned houses, sleazy nightclubs, and strip joints of Sydney. It's all pretty over the top in both these films, but in The Night the Prowler, at least the film presents an effective critique of the middle class values Australia inherited from Britain. And I'll mention a couple more other Sydney films as well. The Osploitation Chop Saki film, The Man from Hong Kong, directed by Brian Trenchard Smith, makes great use of its urban Sydney setting, with kung fu action figure Jimmy Wang Yu cleaning up the corruption of the city through high kicks and fisticuffs. It's in the comic book tradition of films like Mad Max and Trenchard Smith's own Dead 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 End Drive-In and Turkey Shoots. And then I'll mention Gillian Armstrong's Starstruck, which is a delightful film. It also makes great use of Sydney, as the irrepressible kids in the film try to take their music from the family pub to the Sydney Opera House. Highly recommended, that one. Peter Weir's The Last Wave doesn't really use the anonymity of Sydney to stand in for other cities. Rather, he uses the cold, cruel, and brutal architecture of the city, as well as the doom and uh, impending doom of the weather, to draw a contrast with the desert surrounding the city. In the film, the natural world rises up in opposition to the blemish that the city represents as a symbol of the irrational forces that man cannot ultimately control. Critic Jack Clancy has said, quote, Much of the film's sense of menace, of imminent apocalyptic doom, comes from the very strong feeling of disjunction, of white civilization as no more than a historic pimple on the edge or on the vast timeless body of the ancient continent. Encounter at Raven's Gate, directed by Dutch director Rolf de Heer, presents a similarly mysterious apocalyptic scenario in a rural town in Australia where all the cars stop running, the wells dry up, sheep die, and birds fall from the sky, and the very earth seems to be in the paroxysm of death. The setting is pretty specifically Australia, as in The Last Wave, but the film, like both of Weir's mysteries, Picnic at Hanging Rock and The Last Wave, seems to be getting at something deeper, more universally mysterious. Here, in this film, it could be alien visitations, or the emotional fallout from a love triangle, or a stalker-like tale about an unexplained zone in the middle of rural Australia, but there's no doubt that this film is beautiful as well as mysterious. I don't talk about it a lot here, just because it's such an uncategorizable film, but you should head out and see this film as soon as possible. It's really amazing. It's also called Incident at Ravensgate in some places, but look for Encounter at Ravensgate. Prepare yourself for a masterpiece of mystery and suspense. Simon! What happened at Summerfield could happen to anyone. Simon! Summerfield. Remote. Beautiful. Mysterious. An island of secrets. Well, that was another clip from an Australian trailer, and that one was for Summerfield. Summerfield is also unique in that it takes place in a geographically specific place, a scenic island in Australia, but it creates a mood, an eerie mood, and uh, that's entirely due to being confined for much of its running time to this island and the nearby town. It's also the first film of several that I'll discuss now that feature very bizarre and twisted families and that are homebound, films that take place almost entirely in a home or, in this case, on the island in, in the uh, compound of the home. 
And like many, many Australian films, the main character here is a teacher. He's also an outsider in this town. He's come to this town after the teacher before him has gone, uh, has gone missing mysteriously. And the small town paranoia and sense of hidden secrets in this town becomes immediately apparent after he arrives. The film was written and produced by the same team that created Picnic at Hanging Rock and directed by Ken Hanam, who had directed A Sunday Too Far Away. The film was originally meant for Peter Weir as well. It's easy to see why Weir may have passed on it, though, since the film's poetry is not nearly as profound as in Picnic. While it attempts to create a similar mood, it's not really entirely successful, and the mystery at the heart of the film is frankly quite predictable. Nick Tate, an excellent Australian actor, stars as the teacher. Elizabeth Alexander, she's very ethereal and airy herself in this film, stars as the owner of Summerfield. And the prolific Australian actor John Waters, very great in Breaker Morant and The Getting of Wisdom, stars here as Jenny's mysterious brother. The film does have a, low, a lovely soundtrack by Bruce Smeaton, uh, which features the mesmerizing sounds of an Aeolian harp. And there are countless eerie vignettes in the film of spooky children. There's some great overhead shots of the island. And I'd say at its best, the film is like The Wicker Man, as directed by Claude Chabrol. Uh, but really, the climax and especially the anticlimactic ending of the film feel like a complete letdown. And it's hard to not leave the film feel feeling very disappointed. seeing something when you screamed last night i saw it happen i saw the knife i saw it cut her throat i see lots of things in my head and there was someone else there a little boy a horrible little grinning boy who was he well, that was a clip making good use of the opening scene to the very, very frightening film, Cassandra. This, this psychic thriller, Cassandra, also includes a shocking familial twist in its plot. It's, Cassandra is a slasher film directed by Colin Eggleston, director of The Long Weekend, and it's a tribute to Hitchcock, full of bravura cinematography and editing, and I was really deeply impressed by this film, how genuinely creepy and scary it is. It seems to me that it's very rare that exploitation films can be both creepy and scary. Mostly they're just creepy, but this film scared the bejesus out of me. Check out that opening scene, which is completely frightening and unforgettable. The title character is Cassandra. She's appropriately named for she has visions, visions that trouble her parents, who apparently harbor guilty secrets, while bloody murders occur throughout the town. These visions that Cassandra has, they're of the past, of the present, and of the future, and they're really used well in the film. And just as in Summerfield, the central couple, the parents of Cassandra, are, seem to be hiding something horrible, something that torments Cassandra on a nightly basis. The secret is both reminiscent of Summerfield's secret and a lot less predictable and more, more satisfactory, making this a much more satisfactory film than, than Summerfield. However, equally moody, however, even better than Cassandra, is the mesmerizing film Next of Kin, directed by New Zealander Tony Williams, which, if anything, is even creepier and more haunting than Cassandra. It's not so much a twisted family film, but it does have some of the same hallmarks of these housebound family 
twisted kind of bizarre family films. It takes place in the claustrophobic space of a boarding house and familiar secrets are definitely involved and there is something amiss that begins to torment the main character in the film, also a, a woman who returns to her hometown. The exploitation documentary Not Quite Hollywood, which is highly recommended if you do want to go out and supplement this podcast by um, kind of learning more about a lot of these exploitation films, definitely check out Not Quite Hollywood. It spends a considerable amount of time on this film, with Quentin Tarantino in particular gushing enthusiastically about the film. And if you've ever heard Quentin Tarantino, you know how he can gush. Comparisons in the, are made with The Shining. Like um, Strange Behavior, it's also an Australian-New Zealand co-production. And also in that film, uh, I should say, let me back up, the comparisons with The Shining are in the many of the shots of the film, including creepy children in a hotel hallway and a strange hotel door that has some bizarre goings-ons behind it. Um, like Strange Behavior, this film... Next of Kin is an Australian-New Zealand co-production, and also like Strange Behavior, it's completely unique. In the documentary Not Quite Hollywood, the gothic style is also compared with the Henry James film adaptation The Innocents. I find that's kind of an interesting comparison. Tessa Humphreys stars in the film. She's the daughter of Dame Edna, Barry Humphreys, and John Jarrett, who's a very prolific Australian actor. He starred in Picnic at Hanging Rock, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, and the, and the Dark Age, which is an Australian giant crocodile film, which I probably should have mentioned in my Animal Attacks podcast. And more recently, John Jarrett also starred in Wolf, Wolf Creek, Django Unchained, there's the Tarantino connection, and the giant Australian crocodile film Rogue, probably a remake of Dark Age, I imagine. Uh, both of them star in Next of Kin. And Kraut rocker Klaus Schulze from Tangerine Dream, also previously mentioned, discussing the soundtrack to Strange Behavior, provides the soundtrack to this film as well. Will Linda survive the nightmare that threatens her sanity? Fans of gothic horror will not be disappointed. So you just heard a snippet from the soundtrack to Next of Kin. That was actually a piece called Death of a... A Death of an Analog by Klaus Schulze, which predates the film, but was used very, very smartly in the film. So as I was mentioning, Tessa Humphreys stars in the film. She returns to her hometown to inherit an old folks home from her mother, and she slowly discovers an evil presence in the house that her mom had noticed previously and written about in her diary. Strange figures appear, old people end up dead, a forgotten family aunt is mentioned, and the family doctor and housekeeper act suspiciously. Again, this sounds very familiar to films like Summerfield and Cassandra. Soon, memories are dredged up and we're in haunted house territory. But it's all filmed so beautifully and frighteningly with plenty of steady cam, slow pans, bizarre camera angles, and slow motion. Especially check out several scenes of a spooky hallway, including one where the camera dollies in while the lens zooms out that's reminiscent of Vertigo, and another from a high angle with... Humphreys running for her life in slow motion while the goblin-esque soundtrack noise of Klaus Schulze plays in the background. In fact, much of the film, Next of Kin, is just scene after scene that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Several of them seem to have been, as I mentioned, a direct influence on Stanley Kubrick with The Shining. Among the creepiest images, a drowned victim, drowning victim appears to float outside Humphreys' window. An eye gets punctured by a needle through a keyhole. 
A madwoman in a wheelchair and a wig lurks in the attic. Shades of Jane Eyre here. And at one point, Humphreys looks at a copy of Andrew Wyeth's painting Christina's World, which appears even, which this film can even make this, this standard piece of Americana appear as creepy as like the Black Sabbath's, Black Sabbath's debut album cover. It's, it's a really creepy film. I definitely recommend it. It's not as scary as Cassandra, but it's completely unique and, uh, hard to compare to any other horror film. What are you going to do to me? Just a second, Alan, what do you think you're doing? Wait the bit again, Alan. Alan! You're an idiot, Alan, what are you? Enough. You just heard a clip from a key scene in Fred Shepsey's debut film, The Devil's Playground. The Devil's Playground is a story of a twisted family of a different sort. The family here is a family of boys and priests at a Catholic seminary. The seminary is run by an order of brothers who subjugate the boys in every way imaginable, not least of all sexually. It is similar to Wake and Fright in that both films feature teachers, flamboyant alcoholism, and repressed homosexuality. I guess those could be seen as other Australian themes. <laughs> the priests, who are literally and figuratively the fathers in the film, teeter on the edge of sanity and sobriety as they grapple with their own repressed desires, and the students, the children in the film, attempt to deal with their own awakening sexuality in increasingly unhealthy ways. Typical masturbation leads to more worrisome sadomasochistic practices. The film is a quiet masterpiece and includes generous doses of humor and wistfulness, and it rivals Hope and Glory and Zero de Conduit as tales of young boys growing into adulthood and fighting to keep their innocence under difficult circumstances. There weren't many Australian films that actually looked at religion, per se. Australia is a very secular country, but there were many examples of Australian coming-of-age films that I came across, including The Getting of Wisdom, The Year My Voice Broke, My Brilliant Career, The Irishman, and Puberty Blues. I don't really have time to go to, into any of these films in depth here. At first, he did seem to spend a lot of time alone. Mum looked after him. Although sometimes she called him her bad boy, Bubby. And there was always Cat to play with. Well, that was the trailer to the unforgettable film Bad Boy Bubby. Bad Boy Bubby is a more recent example of the twisted family film, and it was directed by Rudolph Tahir, the same man who gave us the similarly unclassifiable Encounter at Raven's Gate. He's also, he also directed the only film to star Miles Davis, which is Dingo. Bubby is a middle-aged prisoner of his abusive and incestuous mom who twists his mind up in all kinds of sick ways not dissimilar from the horrible parents in the recent Greek film Dogtooth, if you've seen that one. The first 30 minutes of the film are so brutal and bleak that they are truly hard to watch, and it's almost easy to forget that the film's supposed to be a black comedy. But once Bubby's long-lost father returns, the film opens up and things begin to improve for Bubby. The film really is like a much darker and somewhat hilarious Being There, the Kushinsky novel that was filmed with Peter Sellers. And the simple, sheltered Bubby blunders his way through the world, becoming an unlikely celebrity, but never losing his innate sweetness and skewed perspective. 
it's really, really an odd film, and it's really not recommended for everyone, but completely unforgettable. I saw it many years ago. I don't need to see it again because I literally remember every single scene from the film. Definitely worth watching. May we introduce you to Patrick. Is playing dead, or is he? He isn't dead. He isn't alive. <laughs> Only Kathy cares, understands. What do you call it when someone has the power to make things move around the room without touching them? Magic. Okay, that was a clip from the horror film Patrick, which I mentioned briefly last week. Patrick is a film that is only marginally part of this sick family subgenre, which I've been talking about. It's a classic horror film directed by Richard Franklin, who I talked about quite a bit last week. Also, the guy who directed Survivor and um, Road Games and many other classic horror or classic Australian films. Patrick is an example of what the writer Kim Newman calls the psychopath film. That's spelled P-S-I, as in psi. After Carrie and The Omen, there were many examples of these films, which featured humans with supernatural powers. Usually, usually it's psychokinesis, the ability to control objects and other people with your mind. Robert Thomas stars as Patrick, who begins the film as an angry young man who one day electrocutes his mom and her boyfriend after they noisily make love in the room next to his. The premise of how Patrick ended up in a coma with this seventh sense is too ridiculous to go into here, but Patrick uses this power to take revenge on the evil doctors and nurses who torment him, experiment on him, and plan on removing his life support. The film is full of creepy, well-directed touches and is full of Hitchcock references. Richard Franklin purposely set the clinic in the abandoned Melbourne Hotel where the film was shot. It looks a little bit like Norman Bates' house, actually, which is fitting because Franklin actually went on to direct Psycho 2 several years later. Well, that's really all I have to discuss today and completes the uh, two-part series that I've been doing on Australian films. I've talked a lot about Australian exploitation films as well as art films by Peter Weir and other directors. And it really divided nicely in that the first part you know, the half of the films that I've seen were all Osplate or Outback films. So films that took place in the Outback that commented on uh, the deadliness of nature and man's place in the universe. And then this week, of course, the films that take place in cities, usually uh, featuring anonymous cities to make comments on the alienation or anonymity of cities uh, or within the home, within the cities to talk about weird families and kind of a lot of the genre films took that approach. Great films, all of them. I'm going to put up on my Twitter feed, Mike at Happy Wanderer 13, a list of some of my favorite Australian films. So you can kind of check it out and go see the ones that I really like the best. There's just so many that are great uh, of these films. And I'm really happy that I made it to, through these podcasts without using the word mate or attempting to talk in a bad Australian accent or mentioning Crocodile Dundee, Strictly Ballroom, or Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Although there were many other films that I would have liked to work to work into the into this this uh, podcast, but I'll let you discover those. Definitely check out the documentary "Not Quite Hollywood." There's some great films or some great books on Australian cinema as well. I would I would especially recommend "Australian National Cinema" by Tom O'Regan. He's a well-known writer on Australian film, and the compendium "Images of Australia" by Neil Radigan. 
Also, the the book Australian Cinema, Brian, Brian McFarlane, talks a lot about the themes I mentioned of outback films and of city films. And finally, I will recommend one website as well. It's www.tabularasa.com, and it's spelled T-A-B-U-L-A-R-A-S-A. Actually, you can just Google Tabula Rasa because I'm not sure if that URL is correct. But this is a website dedicated to Australian film. They've got a great essay on Australian horror. They also go into New Zealand films as well, uh, including uh, uh, filmmakers like uh, Jane Campion and um, Peter Jackson. So I didn't get to talk much about New Zealand films. Maybe I'll save that for a future podcast. But I did want to thank you all for sticking with Neil and I on this podcast. And I look forward to next week. Thanks, Mike. Mike can be found at HappyWanderer13 on Twitter. I'm at Candle underscore ends. If you follow me, please follow him, too. He still looks like a Twitter egg, though. And that's about it for this episode of the Hunting for Candle Ends podcast. We have some cool things planned for the future, including a new regular contributor. But to find out about that, you'll have to keep tuning in. Now, here's Lenka with Heart to the Party off her new album, Shadows. Good night. Dream was real, the key fit the line.